Good afternoon. The sun's out, the birds are chirping. It's a good time to talk about Dhamma. So what I'd like to uh, talk about today, offer for reflections, is uh, continuing the path we've been taking through together um, in the... uh, Kimatiya Sutta, what purpose? From Anguttara Nikaya 10.1. And just to remind you, not, not that you need any reminding, the path we've discussed, the natural flow, really the natural flow of one thing leading to another, one condition giving rise to another, we've talked about, started from wholesome virtuous behavior really cultivating that, kusalani, silani, which would give rise to non-regret, would give rise to to um, gladness, pamoja, which would give rise to joy, rapture, which would give rise to pasadi, calm, tranquility, which would give rise to sukkha, to bliss, which would give rise to samadhi, unification of mind, which would give rise to knowledge and vision of things as they are, yatta bhutanyanadasana, yatta bhutanyanadasana, the emphasis on the Pali always gets me. Anyway, uh, seeing things as they are, seeing things exactly as they are through through the lens of character, uh, three characteristics. And now that brings us to the next links of of this sutta which is the topic of tonight t- this afternoon's um dhamma conversation and that is uh nibbida virago which is uh translated often as disenchantment or better translation is being enchantment free and uh dispassion lack of passion. So disenchantment or disenthrall or being enchantment-free and dispassion. And that leading to knowledge of vi- knowledge and vision of things as they are. Or knowledge and vision of, li- sorry, knowledge and vision of liberation. Knowledge and vision of liberation, which is vimutti nyana dasana, which is also a synonym for nibbana. So it's great it's with great delight that I like to talk to you about disenchantment and dispassion. Yay. Anyone excited to talk about them? It's not what we often think they are actually. It's not what we think they are at all. So so I'll start with nibida. Nibida the right um pronunciation in Pali. So, again, often translated as disenchantment, but um, dispa- uh, uh, disengagement or losing attachment to something. And and what's interesting about the word is that it can seem like a neg- it has a negative connotation in English. Um, but it's actually a wholesome movement of the mind. And it's not negative. It doesn't have a negative feeling to it, as I will explore t- 
today. And it's, it's really a wholesome part of the journey of awakening. So let's spend some time together to actually understand the word itself, the etymology. So the word nibida, it's derived from the prefix nis, which means without, and the verbal root vindati, to find. So most literally, the word nibida means something like without finding, without finding. And there's a story in the texts that very usefully illustrates the meaning of this very important term. So the story is this, a dog stumbles across a bone that has been exposed to the elements for many months and has therefore been bleached of any residual flesh or marrow. The dog gnaws on it for some time before before it finally determines that um, it's not finding, it's not finding any satisfaction in the bone and thus turns away from it. There's just no satisfaction, turns away. So it's not that the bone is intrinsically uh, disgusting or bad or awful. It's not that. It's that the case, the, the, rather it's that the dog's raging desire for meat, its hunger, um, is just not being satisfied by the bone. So, so the dog becomes disenchanted by the prospect of gratification um, as it scrapes away furiously at the bone. So it, the, there's enchantment there first, l- scraping away at the bone, gnawing. But then when it finally realizes realizes the truth that the bone is empty of anything that will offer satisfaction, then the dog becomes disenchanted and spits it out. So for a moment, in order to again get better to explore, understand what actually this enchantment means and distinguish it from the negative connotation that usually the word has in English. So often the word disenchantment in in English, again, it has this negative connotation. I'm disenchanted. And you kind of look, you know, you imagine someone sitting depressed, disenchanted, like this kind of revulsion, this, this, um, negative, this, this unpleasant Vedana, maybe even aversion. Okay, that's not it. No, that's not it. That's usually what we think about, what, what Nibida is. It's not that. And I really want to emphasize this because when we often read in English um, the description, we, we read disenchantment, sometimes like kind of subliminally we think... Um, as a good Buddhist, oh, I need to become disenchantment with the world. I need to kind of like, ew, kind of pull myself back. And we kind of put that on it. And our practice can actually go off the rails into a very negative, um, dark, um, it's not a free space. It's not a happy space. And that's not what the destination is. So, 
So if that has been your impression of what this word means, what this teaching is, it's not. It's not that. So what is it? Okay, so pause for a moment. So let's consider the opposite. Let's consider the opposite in English, enchantment. So if we look in the dictionary, what enchantment means, it's the state of being under a spell. The state of being under a spell, okay? That's, that's when you're enchanted. And think about, um, you know, enchanted, these spells, like where spells often show up a lot. The places that they show up the most I've seen is, is in fairy tales, in fairy tales for children, where there's a spell put on this, you know, prince or this little girl or etc. etc. You know, there are a lot of spells put on. So, so these enchantments. Actually, I, I remember there were years ago. There is this. I don't know if any of you might have seen this. Also, the playwright Mary Zimmerman had a play that was called "The Secret in the Wings." And I got to see it in Berkeley at the Berkeley Rep in 2004. And and um, it was all about fairy tales. It was about fairy tales and spells and enchantments. And, and you know, and it was pretty amazing to me, that, you know, as kids, how we were told and we t- these stories. But actually, as an adult, when you re- relate to to um, these um these stories, these fairy tales, they're really awful, really awful things happen to people and lots of all terrible spells and enchantments are put on people. So um, so, so through seeing that play, I lost my enchantment with fairy tales because I had this enchantment, this, this enthrallment with fairy tales and I lost it by actually seeing clearly what they were. And not to say... Um, so. So this enchantment, so think of it as being a, a state of being rid of or free of enchantment. As if you wake up, as in a fairy tale, you wake up and the gold dust is gone. You, you wake up from a spell. Oh, you're not under this enchantment to necessarily do something. Um, so think of it as a state of being rid of, being free of enchantment, free of illusion, uh, to be or to be freed from illusion of false belief, undeceived. That's another translation um, in, in the dictionary. Undeceived, to be undeceived, to be free from illusion or false belief, which is a much better way to relate to it, really. So again, there is no disgust, which is not a helpful translation. Uh, this also, nibbida sometimes is translated as, as a sense of disgust, which again, not a helpful translation because there's a lot of aversion in it. But it really is being free. It's, it is describing a sense of freedom and ease without um, aversion, without moving away. It's just being free. It's a state of freedom like, oh, I was enchanted with this thing. It's not enchanted anymore. How how cool is that? Ah, freedom, ease. That's really what it's about. That's what it's just a sense of ease of not being enchanted or caught, not being caught in something anymore, not wanting something anymore, not seeing uh, 
the um, satisfaction. So, so one way to perhaps to relate to this, something that perhaps maybe all of us have experienced, is you, if you've ever had, if you've ever had a crush on someone, you know, maybe when you were young, you had a crush on someone, and then sometime later, you kind of you look back and say, what was I thinking? Like, what was that about? Right? You were free from that enchantment with that person, with that being. So, so let's get to it a little more. Let's, let's like kind of really feel that, that example. So, so, you know, there was a popular song in the 1980s by Sting, Every Little Thing She Does Is Magic. You know, enchantment is kind of like that. It's like, oh, it's magic. It's all magic. There's a sense of enthrallment. So actually what's happening um, in, um, you know, for when, when there is this obsession for weeks or months, of course, the object of your obsession and desire or passion you see completely through rose-colored glasses. And you, you don't see any red flags that the family or friends might, be, might dare to point out to you about what's happening. Um, and only you can see it when the gold dust has vanished. So, so I'd like to talk about it a little evolutionarily in a moment. So your brain on love, what's, what happens is dopamine you get doses and doses of dopamine, which is the feel-good hormone associated with euphoria. Um, it gets released every time you think of the person you have a crush on. And by the way, dopamine also gets released. Every, uh, it's, it's similar to ga- gambling and drug addiction. Okay. So then it comes... Nor, nor, uh, norepinephrine, which like dopamine makes us feel good, but makes us infatuated and obsessed. Basically, it's your brain's way of saying, keep going, keep going. And at this point, your limbic reward system is lighting up like a Christmas tree, which again, apparently looks similar in your brain as if you were d- addicted to cocaine, cocaine. And your amygdala, which is key to making judgments, is kind of like on vacation. It takes a little nap, and which is where your judgment gets clouded, because and then you're completely enamored, um, and you see your beloved in uh, through rose-colored glasses. So, for me, it's also helpful to bring in this this um, to think about, to reflect about this. Um, the intensity of this enchantment, you know, when we when we fall in love or when we have a a um, an infatuation, to feel like you know how evolutionarily it seems like this is what's happening. So, in the bigger scale, that's what um, freedom from these evolutionary rose-colored glasses is. What the Buddhist practice gives us when we go, oh wow. Oh, I was en- I was enchanted with all these things that are actually don't bring satisfaction. Oh, okay. Huh. You can still relate to them, be with them, even enjoy them, but not be enchanted with them. Not be in love with them. It's a different relationship. 
It's a relationship of freedom. And speaking of this freedom from illusion, you know, this is something that other philosophers and scientists talk about also. In his book, Daniel Dennett, um, the well-known philosopher, um, this I'll read a paragraph from a review of his book that showed up in the New York Review of Books by Thomas Nagel in the March 2017 issue. Um, and the title of that article, that review article, was Is Consciousness an Illusion? And Thomas Nagel writes about Daniel Dennett. He says... For 50 years, the philosopher Daniel Dennett has been engaged in a grand project of disenchantment of the human world, using science to free us from what he deems illusions, illusions that are difficult to dislodge because they are so natural. Does that sound familiar? Yes. In From Bacteria to Bach and Back, that's the name of the book, in, bacter- in From Bacteria to Bach and Back, his 18th book, 13th as sole author, Dennett presents a valuable and typically lucid synthesis of his worldview. Though it is supported by reams of scientific data, he acknowledges that much of what he says is conjectural rather than proven, either empirically or philosophically. So I like to think that the Buddha, as a phenomenologist and as a philosopher-scientist, he's inviting us to see for ourselves, eh, Pasiko, come and see for yourself empirically from a first-person perspective. You know, science is often done, always done from a third-person perspective, but, but see for yourself, your mind, your heart, your body, it's, it's all a laboratory. Come see for yourself. Come see these enchantments and, and these illusions, these mere illusions that are so difficult to list, dislodge because they feel natural. But yet you can see. It can be seen. They can be seen. You've been seeing them. They can be seen. And also I feel that, you know, as philosophers wax philosophy about this, in our practice, we really can do a first-person investigation. You know, it's not just about reading a book about the illusion. No, on the cushion you get to see them and you get to see how they're not satisfactory, how they're impermanent and they're all hollow. They're not satisfying. They're not self. You get to see it. It's pretty wild to be able to see what people only conjure up. They think about, this is really powerful. And it's not, of course, it's not a heady endeavor. You get to see it for yourself over and over again and change the habitual tendency of your mind and your mind becomes more and more free, naturally. So I'd like to turn my attention a little bit, our attention, a bit now to to Viraga, 
viraga a little bit. So, in some ways similar to dispassion, in some ways a little different. They go. They usually go to, to together. So viraga, first etymology and the word. So viraga is an abstract noun which is derived from the word um, joining uh, from v, which means without, and raga, which means passion. So basically meaning without passion, without interest, without that, that uh, drive. Um, so it's a sense of... Um, disinterest and again that's another word in english that's usually mistranslated so disinterest in english doesn't mean lack of interest it just means being impartial neither moving towards not moving away from it's kind of like ah disinterest kind of being with being with so there's a further etymological definition that um, indicates that the root ranj, which refers to color. So V ranj, gain, can't quite say this correctly, but the state of viraga means to go beyond color, to be uncolored. And I love that in a way. So again, let's be careful. It doesn't mean that the world loses its color and it's all dull now. It does not mean that. What it means is to to remain completely engaged in the world, yet uncolored by the world. And isn't that a beautiful description, a beautiful way to be? Again, completely engaged in the world, in the marketplace, in in the fullness of being human, and yet uncolored by it in that way. So, again, to remind us that these states, nibbida and viraga, being enchantment-free and and dispassionate, these are not states that... um, we put on that we're like, okay, today I'm going to sit with this. No, please don't do that because that is can be a recipe for disaster. It's not something you put on your lens to look through. They arise naturally from the previous step, which is seeing things as they are. When the mind has enough samadhi, enough settledness, enough stability, the mind sees the impermanence, when the mind sees unsatisfactoriness and not self, there's a sense of, oh, this is not what I thought it was. The mind kind of cools. And so they happen, they arise on their, on their own. Don't push it. Don't ever push these states. It's not wise. It's not healthy. They arise whenever the practice is mature, when wisdom is mature, when you're ready. They will come find you. Don't go knocking on their door because it can lead to nihilism and a kind of a dark view of, the, of life and being human. So I hope I'm warning you clearly enough. And then just to say a little bit more about dispassion, um, about actually, I like to word the the 
like to use the word poly. The poly for me is more, much more rich because when it gets translated, it kind of like, it loses something. Uh, whereas maybe you can relate even better with the poly because it's more complex. So, so the difference between nibida and viraga, nibida, and being free of enchantment, and viraga, being fr- passion-free, dis- disinterested. So this slight difference between the two of them. So with nibida, the feeling is in the best way I can describe it for you, and again, you, you'll see for yourself, that the mind, when it sees the three characteristics and, and in itself, it turns away. It kind of turns away. It's like, ah, not profitable. Kind of the mind recoils. It kind of turns away on its own. Turns away. It's like, mm. it's like that, that example of the dog. The dog keeps gnawing and gnawing. It's like, yeah, it's not happening. This is not satisfying. And the dog kind of turns away. So the mind, you'll see the movement in the mind of recoiling, just turning away. Like, it's not, it's not satisfying. It's not, that's not where it's at. And it kind of moves away um, into a more peaceful space. And then dispassion um, or viraga, viraga is more like an extinguishing. It's kind of like, ah, you just kind of like get the fire. That's it. The fire, that passion, that kind of it, fire of wanting kind of gets extinguished. And again, I st- also want to make a clarification distinction because uh, interest and passion, they also have positive connotations too. You know, there's a passion and, and interest in practice. There is virya, there is effort, there is chanda. You know, all of those are beautiful qualities. But this, this, the way this fire or passion is, is re- the way it's, it's not about the feeling, it's about what it relates to, relating to what cannot be satisfying. Um, the worldly um, enchanting things, the gold that's, ooh, I, sh- I should do that, I should do this, this is great, this is that. Um, it's, it's, it's what seeing, seeing or waking up from the spell of, of what does not really provide satisfaction, lasting satisfaction, and waking up into a sense of freedom. So again, these will arise naturally from seeing impermanence, arising and passing away, no permanency, no solidity. It keeps changing. We work hard to get the conditions all right, and it keeps changing, darn it, it's it's like seeing a river of change. It's just changing all the time. And it doesn't stop. Things keep coming and going. Things keep, keep coming and going. It's their instability that gets to be seen. It's all disappearing. It's all disappearing. Nothing to hang on to. Nothing to hang on to. Seeing not just the anicca impermanence, but seeing the unsatisfactoriness, the 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 dukkha, no inherent satisfaction. Because it keeps changing, thanks to anicca, there's no permanency, there's no satisfaction. And seeing the not-self, anatta, it's unreliable, it's uncontrollable, it's ungovernable. 
There is no there there. That's how some people describe it. There's no there there. It's not I, it's not me, it's not mine. It gets to be seen clearly. And it gets to be seen clearly that we keep doing what's called ahinkara and maminkara, and I love this, I-making and my-making. The mind sees there is no benefit in these. So Bhikkhu Bodhi describes Nibbida in this way, which I love. And I'll read it slowly so you can relish the words and let it settle through you. He says, Nibbida signifies, in short, the serene, dignified withdrawal from phenomena which supervenes when the illusion of their permanence, pleasure, and selfhood has been shattered by the light of correct knowledge and vision of things as they are. I love that. It's a serene and dignified withdrawal. It's serene and very dignified. So it's a way of reorienting. um, And it's part of really spiritual maturity on the path. And yet to say that it can accompany, when the mind is ready, it could accompany... um, some difficult emotional experiences, some difficult emotions when it comes up because it could feel like a feeling of estrangement from what has been our familiar experience of relating to the world. And you might feel like, wait, wait, I've I've been duped all along. There's kind of like a feeling of, what? There's no Santa Claus? (laughs) I've been told there's Santa Claus it can feel like that a little bit. And that could kind of shake one a little bit when the mind really, really sees it clearly. Again, don't try to make it happen. Just, But if it does happen, it's natural. It's part of the path. It's okay. So it can't bring up a sense of sadness. It can bring up a sense of mourning. It can also bring up a sense of boredom or while one is still kind of getting used to this new view of the world, um, because what was previously satisfying is no longer satisfying. Ajahn Chah describes this way. He says, This turning away comes from the sense of disenchantment and dispassion, Nibbida Viraga, that arises as the natural result of seeing the way things are. It's not a turning away that comes, it's not a turning away that comes from ordinary worldly moods such as fear, revulsion, or other unwholesome qualities like envy or aversion. You got that? This is what I've been trying to tell you. And he puts it simply and beautiful. It's not coming from the same root. It's, um, where is it? It's not a turning away that comes from ordinary worldly moods, such as fear, revulsion, or other unwholesome qualities, like envy or aversion. It's not coming from the same root of attachment as those defiled mental states. This is turning away that has a spiritual quality to it and has a different effect on the mind than the normal moods of boredom and weariness when 
as experienced by ordinary unenlightened human beings. Pratujana. So until this restabilization, until the mind is restabilized into a new way of relating with more freedom, with ease, um, into this world without Santa Claus, um, and until we've land safe, safely landed on the other side, it could feel like a bit of a land of limbo because the mind is getting is is letting go of familiar ways of seeing and being, and yet not quite established in a new way. So it's almost like you know a leap in midair left to this land hasn't quite landed on the other, and it can be kind of unstable. So. If and when that happens for you on your path, whenever that happens, and I share this with a, in a long-term view, it's not like, oh, this next week, next few days. No, think about a long-term view, um, weeks, months, years, um, really long-term view. It's, it's, it's really healthy to, tr- to have that. Um, this is something I learned from Jack Hornfield. Just take the, and actually, he would even take the multi-life view to just really have that ease of practice, so so one doesn't get tight. You know, I was, um, I'll tell you a story. I'm going to go off script. When in part of my training, I would sit in on practice meetings, and there would be cases where I, you know. With, uh, w- of course, they, he would have to practice me, and afterwards we would discuss why he said this, why he did that. And I remember really learning from Jack that he he held this long-term view, really decades for people, multi-life view, in their practice progress. Whereas as as a new budding trainee, I was more like, right here now, some Vega, like okay, yes, that too, and it is healthy to have a long-term view. Of, of progress, of both others' progress and your own progress, as long as you're hanging in there, you're hanging in there. So that was really eye-opening for me um, to, to, to really have that view, um, to, to, to hold that in a supportive way. And again, Samvega is beautiful. It's one of the, the beautiful spiritual qualities. And, and may you all have Samvega and practice as if your hair is on fire and also have an ease of practice and a long-term view about your practice. So there is ease and space about it. So um, So what I was saying is, so whenever this arises for you, this sense of nibida virago, whenever it arises, long-term view, not just sharing this this week, but hopefully you'll remember sometime, you know, the seed will be planted. It will be helpful to have guidance if you can reach out to a teacher, if you can have recurrent, uh, reassurance to take courage and have faith, take refuge and have support with you because it's not easy territory to 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 um to travel on your own if and when it arises for you or if it has arisen for you you already know so Again, these the it's part of this progression 
Nibbida virago is part of the spiritual maturity. To not put our faith is in what is not inherently satisfying. Um, and also to be aware of um, this nibbida and virago to arise without any aversion to to the relative and not again not privilege the the ultimate reality of seeing as th- things as they are not to privilege that over the relative um, don't make that mistake don't try to be too spiritual again another way to see this is in the part of spiritual maturity is you know when you were growing up maybe you had toys maybe you had dolls um and at some point, when you grew older, you grew out of the enchantment with them. And not to say you didn't hate the toys anymore. You didn't hate them. Maybe there was even some like, oh, my favorite toy. You kind of see, you saw how you related to it when you were younger. But they didn't hold the same enchantment for you. So there's no aversion towards it. It's just a, a different more free relationship and you know as an adult you'd be free to give it to a child uh, to give it away whereas maybe you're a child you wouldn't share the toy you loved it so much it was this enchantment with that object And to see that this might already been happening for you, actually, you know, the, what I was talking about, you know, the the complete the um, the overwhelming it's this nibida and virago are parts of the unfolding of the of the stages of insight and the difficulty, the the dark night I was referring to that can that can happen when one is really steeped into that into the practice. Um, and it can be pretty overwhelming, which is a good time to have support. And yet, I trust that you've all tasted Nibida Virago in different places in your life. Like this example with toys. You know what I mean. You've experienced that. You know that. You know, it's it's a familiar human experience. just doesn't hold that enthrallment for you anymore, of course. Or... You know, maybe there have been some relationships for you that have fallen away. Or, you know, I I gave the example of falling in love infatuation. You've had that experience. Oh, yeah. You see the person for who they are, for their beauty and their faults. And there's not that enchantment anymore. Oh, yeah, okay. You've had that experience. Maybe, Maybe some of your habits have changed. It just doesn't interest you anymore. You know, many people when they start practicing, if they did have the habit of going to bars and and you know that that scene, they kind of lose. It's like eh, not interesting anymore. Not into that. It just kind of changes. It's nibbita virago. It's right there. So so again, it's not so unfamiliar. It's not like oh, what what is what is that? You've experienced it. You have plenty of examples of your own um, things that. Just they've lost their enchantment for you.
And what I also really want to emphasize now, actually, in this part um, of, uh, of my talk is really um, disenchantment, that maybe the best, the best disenchantment, the best virago nibida is disenchantment with our own suffering. So if you take up one practice, let it be disenchantment with your own suffering. So what do I mean by that? So, so you know, we don't practice it, it, you know, disenchantment, or disenchantment doesn't arise for its own sake just because it's a cool thing that will come up. No, it's really disenchantment with suffering. Because again, remember, Buddha taught suffering and the end of suffering. The Buddha taught the end of suffering. That's why we're here. That's why we're doing this. The end of suffering. So anything that happens along the path needs to be in service of that and just that, not in not for its own sake. So for the sake of disenchantment with suffering, disenchantment with your own suffering. So what does that mean? You know, we are all fascinated with our own stories, aren't we? We're the center of our own worlds. My point of view, my argument, my history, my emotion, my pain, my pleasure, my suffering, my, you know, I'm right, you're wrong, me, me, me. Um, And have you noticed that how everything you encounter is evaluated by your mind? by this evolutionary piece of equipment we have. It's all evaluated in terms of mine, I, myself, for the satisfaction of selfhood. So our own stories, our own narration, our point of view, uh, I'm right, they're wrong, what they did to me, what they're doing, all of that, all of that. at some point, the mind might relate to it in a way that it just feels tiresome, not with aversion. Again, I really want to clarify, not with aversion, but when the time is right, the mind relates to it like, oh, enough already, come on. <laughs> you know, the mind kind of recoils from going through it again and again because it doesn't provide satisfaction to, be, to soldier them to soldier the, the narrative again and again and again for the millionth time. The mind loses steam. It has nibida, develops nibida, viraga, loses steam, turns around. And I'll give you an example from my own life, actually, that came up years ago. And in, in daily life, so... So... Um, and this was an example where my mind just lost its passion for uh, uh, with with some pattern that was causing pain. It become it became disenchanted with its own suffering. So, um, so I offer that for your reflection. So, there was a difficulty years ago with another person, another being, and my mind would just pick up this angry narrative over and over again whenever anything would remind me of this situation. It would just go 
oh, it just would go into it. This happened, you know, and you know how that goes, right? Anybody not experience the self-righteousness of this angry story? of And it wasn't fun. Of course it wasn't fun. It was, you know, it's, it's taught that anger is honey-tipped and poisoned root. The tip, honey-tipped. So it's sweet, uh, like, oh, yeah, you feel self-righteous. You feel the energy of the anger. It kind of, like, feeds you. And it's like, it kind of feels good in the moment. But it has a poisoned root. Like, ew, it actually really feels awful. It feels awful. And, of course, the root of it is the unwholesomeness. Moha dosa lopa. But, but. It just feels icky when you really, really look at it and you get past the the honey tip. So I think what was happening was my mind picking up was more kind of seeing the honey tip. So gently turn the mind to see the poisonous root, to see the uh, the suffering. And a time came, I actually vividly remember this, a day came that my mind was reminded of this person, this situation, kind of was about to pick up the, the old soliloquy and it just went like, nah, oh, I don't want to go there. There's just no satisfaction there. It just kind of like, oh, it just let go. It just let go. Not, not satisfying. Nipida. There was no enchantment in that anymore. There was no passion in that. Just kind of let go. Ah, now that was freedom for the mind not to pick that up anymore. It was, my mind had become disenchanted with its own suffering. How sweet is that? How sweet is that? One way we can sometimes experience this is... um, Actually, when we are sick and we don't have full energy, if you have been sick on this retreat and we've met, I might have told you that I'm happy for you. I mean, not happy that you got sick. It's not pleasant. But there's something about practicing when you're not feeling well, when you don't, or when you're not full on energy, have the full on energy you're used to, because because your mind doesn't have the energy, the same energy to get enchanted in the usual things that it gets enchanted in. It kind of like, oh, okay, not interesting. Just not enchanted, not energy for that. Just kind of recoils and you get to experience it. Um, it's, so it's sometimes easier to, to experience nipida virago when, when you're sick. So one advice on some retreats I've given people is to practice like a sick person. Practice as if you were sick and see how what that feels like. Ajahn Chah says, if you clearly see the truth of these things through meditation practice, then suffering becomes unwound like a screw or a bolt. When the bolt is unwound, it withdraws. The mind unwinds in the same way letting go, withdrawing from the obsession with good and evil, possessions, praise, status, happiness, suffering. 
I love that description. I just want to read it again because it just really describes how it happens. If you clearly see the truth of these things or things as they are through meditation practice, then suffering becomes unwound. Suffering becomes unwound like a screw or a bolt. When the bolt is unwound, it withdraws. The mind unwinds in the same way, letting go, withdrawing from the obsession with good and evil, possessions, praise and status, happiness and suffering. If we don't know the truth of these things, it's like tightening the screw all the time. It gets tighter and tighter until it's crushing you and you suffer over everything. When you know how things are, then you unwind the screw. In Dharma language, we call this the arising of Nibbida, disenchantment. You become weary of things and lay down the fascination with them. If you unwind in this way, you will find peace. If you unwind in this way, you will find peace. So I want to spend just a few minutes touching on the next one ever so slightly. So the knowledge and vision of liberation, Vimutti Jnana Dasana, kind of is a synonym for, for Nibbana. And it's kind of funny actually to talk about it for just a few minutes because Nibbana is such a huge topic. But just to say that, you know, there's so many ways to relate to Nibbana. But a healthy way, a healthy way is that, first of all, it's not the thing. It's not a thing to attain or have. It's really an absence of. It's really an absence of. It's an absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. It's when these are these fires have been extinguished. They have been nibidad, they have been viragod, they have been nibanad, they have been extinguished. It's a state. So it's it's actually no not so much a state. I don't want to say that. It's it's to think of nibbana as an action. To think it not so much as a noun or a state of being where you'll just be and hang out, but actually to to see it more as an action. A word that is often used is the verb um, nibayati, nibayati, which suggests that nibbana is more closely related to an activity than a state. And as an action, it's a process. It's really a process rather than a culmination. 
an occurrence rather than something one does. So there are a number of passages that describe Nibbana, in particular with the Pali phrase, the going out of a light is used as a simile for liberation. In the sentence, like the going out of a light was the deliverance of mind. Like a light going out, the taints are extinguished when one is nibbanized. So again, it's not gaining anything, it's losing, it's stripping away, it's losing the enchantment, it's losing, it's uh, going out like a light. And you can see how these similes are all about letting go and lightening. That's where peace arises. It's not getting something. It's about letting go. So see in your mind what the attitude is. If the attitude is about getting, getting something, getting concentration, getting jhana, getting nibbana, getting these experiences, getting, or is it oh, letting go? It's a reorientation and trusting that it that the freedom, peace arises from the letting go. Is there is an often quoted definition of nibbana from a statement Sariputta made: the destruction of lust, the destruction of hatred, the destruction of delusion. This friend is called Nibbana. And again, here Nibbana is associated with a particular action, that of destroying. So, what else might be helpful to say to end? I share this. This is a this is a paragraph. Actually, I appreciate this. This is from um, from Gil Fransdal, the teacher and Buddhist scholar. So he says, as an action signifying the disappearance or release of something, nibbana is not a dhamma in the sense of being a specific object of mind. The absence that is the result of this disappearance is even less an object. Even so, the experience of release and the knowing of an absence can be life-changing in what is released are all of one's attachments. An analogy illustrates this. Prisoners may be released from long prison sentences Once released, they may always and clearly know they are free. However, in and of itself, this freedom is not a direct direct existent object of attention. Neither the release from prison nor the subsequent state that is absent of imprisonment are things. They are concepts dependent on memory and the making of meaning. Someone who meets a former inmate but is not told of his incarceration would not see 
the absence of imprisonment. Similarly, while the absence of lust, hatred, and delusion can be known, the absence is not an existent thing that is born, real, made, or conditioned. And there are a lot of other things uh, about this, so if there's more time, we'd um, talk about that, but maybe just leaving it at that for now. And there are a lot of, actually, there are two different ways that Nibbana is held. Um, and just to say that, just to bring that, and perhaps that, um, you know, with, with Buddhism, you know, there's been so much time over the 2,600 years, 2,600 years to develop lots of uh, perspectives on things. And, and there was one perspective that actually the Nibbana as an object, and, and that's the Abhidhamma view. And, and, um, and also there's another view that here, presented by, by uh, Gil as an action, as a letting go, as a gutting, uh, as an emptying. Um, and here is again another one, another quote from Udana. Um, there is what is unborn, not produced, not made, unconditioned. If there were not, it would not be possible to understand escape from what is born, real, made, conditioned. So just so you know that there are different ways that these things are held, and yet what I suggest to you is not to hold on to a view, not to be attached, that it's just definitely this way or it's that way. You know, let the scholars and, you know, have their, you know, go at it. But really, what is helpful in your practice? Not a heady view of what it is and what isn't, but what is, what is freedom in your practice? Letting go, letting go of greed, hatred, and delusion, that ultimately is where freedom rests for us living, breathing human beings. And whether it's, whether the Buddha has some, um, there's some uh, interpretation that is an, the unconditioned is, has ontological existence, which transcends reality, which is one view, or there it's n- does not have an ontological existence, um, does not have a transcendental reality, and it's here and now. So that, I'll bring it in, because I think it's important to be mentioned, um, and and then let that go too. Let that go with the other enchantments, not be enchanted with the definition and just be with your experience of what is freedom? What is freedom? What is ease? What is peace? What is letting go for this mind, this body? Just keeping it real. Let's just sit together for a moment.
from the Dhammapada. All created things are impermanent. Seeing this with insight, one becomes enchantment-free with suffering. This is the path to purity. All created things are dukkha. Seeing this with insight, one becomes enchantment-free with dukkha. This is the path to purity. All things are anatta. Seeing this with insight, one becomes enchantment-free with dukkha. This is the path to purity. May you become enchantment-free with suffering. Thank you for your kind attention. May we all be free from suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.